Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Ellen McGirt. Alan, I'm really excited about our conversation today with John Donahoe of uh, Nike. And I know you know him. You've got a really interesting story. But I just have to comment, he's been CEO a lot. <laughs> he has. Right? This is his fourth CEO gig. I'll tell you, Ellen, John Donahoe was one of the people I had in my mind when we started this podcast. I have known him for quite a while But what I really remember is about five years ago, after he'd done two of his four gigs, he'd been CEO of Mm -hmm. Bain and then CEO of eBay. And he came to see me and he had just finished a year-long sabbatical where he went on this incredible journey that we have to get him to talk about. It was really quite an amazing thing where he searched out his personal purpose and tried to think about what he wanted to do in business going forward. And that was one of the first times I said to myself, you know, something different is happening in business today. This is not what business has been like for most of my career. No, but it really is what it's like for him. And when you think about what his board service, he's the chair of the PayPal board, and he's on the Bridgespan Group board, which is a a nonprofit that came from Bain. It's like a real business consultancies who are applying everything they know how to make philanthropy better and more effective and actually create the solutions that get people to contribute to society. So he's the real deal. He's everything we're talking about here. He is a capitalist. He believes in capitalism as a way to make the world a better place. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. Let's do it. So, John, I've known you, I guess, for a decade. And I know that when you left eBay five years ago, you went on a very serious personal quest to basically, as I remember it, decide what you wanted to do with the rest of your life. You'd already been CEO twice at Bain and then at eBay, and you really wanted to think hard about your personal purpose. Can you talk about that journey? Well, sure, Alan. I, you know, I, I actually had given the advice so many times in my career when someone faced a transition to take time off, and I'd never really done it myself. And I was 55 years old at the time, uh, to be honest, in hindsight, I was I was more burned out than I realized mm-hmm. after 20 years of Bain, 10 intense years at eBay. And so I took that year off to kind of reflect on what it was I wanted to do at the next stage of my life. And it was one of the most rejuvenating years of my life. I, I did a 10-day silent Buddhist retreat early on, and that that was a very kind of foundational portion of the experience. I sort of got in touch with what it was I wanted out of the next stage of my life. One thing led to another where I ended up having what was this wisdom tour, wisdom journey, where I had, you know, I, I had meetings with 50 different people. And, and you know, the short what, version. What kind, of, what kind of people are we talking about, John? Well, what I, what I came to, Alan, was is I realized that I was 55 when I thought about what was I going to care about 10 years later when I was 65? And I started thinking there's certain people mm-hmm. that are 65 and older that have vitality, right? Mm -hmm. They're young at heart, Mm -hmm. they're happy. And there are an awful lot of people that are 65 and older where that's not the case. And and I had learned through brain sciences, you know, your brain does get more negative over time. So I started reaching out to people that were 65 and older that had vitality that I looked up to in that way and said, you know, tell me a little bit about how you understand your life at this stage of your life and how have you handled transitions since you're 50? And if you give me a minute, I'll summarize what what I learned. 
Sure, please do. We because we want to learn the same. I'm going to ask Ellen. I'm on the I'm edge of my seat. I'm going to ask Ellen for a year off. <laughs> uh, number one, attitudes everything. As we get older, we get gray hair, or hair falls out, our knees hurt, our backs hurt. You sort of feel the signs <laughs> oh, of physical oh. aging. I feel all but, of that. <laughs> yes, we all do. But our brains don't necessarily get older. Jim Collins said to me, he said, John, your 50s and your 60s and God willing, your 70s should be the most creative and productive years of your life because you have the wisdom of your experience and you had the freedom to apply that wisdom where you want to do it. And you can do it out of service and not out of ego. Mm. Second, someone someone said to me, you want to know how I have vitality? I hang out with people that have vitality. <laughs> he said, every time I hang out at the golf club with guys my own age, all we do is bitch about how bad our golf swings are and brag about what kind of red wine we drank the night before. That makes me old. I like being around young people. And every one of these people found ways to be around young people. They coached young people. They mentored young people. They taught young people. They worked with young people. They volunteered with young people. Third thing, being conscious about time. Uh, Alan, you know Tom Tierney, right? One of my, my mentors. He put a glass out in front of me. And he said, you know, he calls me Donahoe. He says, you know, Donahoe, uh, this glass is your capacity. And he said, you have spent the last 30 years trying to take a rock that's twice as big as the volume of that glass, mm. jam it in, thinking <laughs> you were going to get more done. All you did was spill a bunch of water on the table and the glass didn't really get bigger. You are who you are. Now your glass is empty. Don't just fill it with pebbles. Find things in your life for which you have accountability and there's consequence. It doesn't have to be one big thing, but find meaningful things in your life and you can add more time for kids, time with your grandkids or travel with your spouse, but find things that have consequence and meaning for you. Fourth thing, this was the thing that was that had the biggest impact on me. It was a, a guy that was, he was requested to be nameless because I've gone back to him, 69 years old, two different people said I had to go see him. He was in the South. And I went and I saw him, I bought him a cup of coffee. He actually bought me lunch. And he's like, John, you want my advice about how you can have vitality when you're my age <laughs> is this. Do not lose sight of your gifts. Now, when I was your age, I never would have used the word gifts because I assumed to have been egotistical. I use that word with not one shred of ego. God gave me certain gifts, and my job's been to figure out which of those gifts, when I utilize them and utilize them in service to others, animates me inside and makes me happy. Because I've learned that all the success and wealth and fame in the world cannot make me happy. Happiness cannot come from the outside. It can only come from the inside. And I've determined that the best way I can contribute to this world at my age is to be happy. So, John, do not let anyone else tell you what your gifts are. You are the only one that has to go inside of yourself and figure out what are the things, when you utilize them, animates you inside and makes you happy. But you need to go do some thinking, young man. I'm like... <laughs> Holy cow. Just tell me what my gifts are. And, and then last one, the role of serendipity. Again, I'll use the example Clay Christensen, who is, you know, has mm -hmm. passed in the last year. Sure. Example of what he said. He said, um, John, he said, John, I'm very conscious about who I am as a husband, as a father, and as an educator. I'm very left-brained about who I am. But he said, I'm I've learned to allow the role of serendipity to play a huge impact in how I spend my time. And the reason is when I look back on my life and my career, 
most of the major fork points, my left brain, and I think I have a big left brain, and anyone that knew Clay knew we did, never could have predicted those things, let alone controlled them. So he said, now when I look to my future, I don't, I don't worry about it because I realize as much as my left brain wants to predict and control it, it, it's a waste of energy. So now I try to be present for what life deals me. And almost everyone I talked to talked about how one thing led to another that led to another. So long-winded way. It was an incredible, <laughs> incredible learning journey. But those things informed what I wanted to do in the next stage of my life. That is amazing. And of course, we want to know how you articulate what your gifts are. But I feel like this whole thing is leading us to how you got to Nike. <laughs> well, I'll say that what led me back in was service-based leadership, servant leadership. That's what animates me inside. And I was fortunate enough to uh, be on the Nike board over the last five, six years. And when Mark Parker and Phil Knight and, and the board came to me and said, would you consider being our next CEO? What, as I reflected on it, what, what struck me was is this, you know, the world is more polarized than any time in my adult life. Mm. Polarization's in, division seems to be in. No kidding. And many of our institutions, right, can't overcome that. Sport is one of the few things that still brings people together. Sport brings people together Within countries, sport brings people together across countries, the Olympics, the World Cup. Sport brings people together on the ultimate level playing field. Doesn't matter the color of your skin, your height, your weight, your personality. If you can play, you can play. Sport brings people together under a civil set of rules. You can be against your arch rival, but you play with a common set of rules and you shake hands at the end of the game. And so as I reflected upon it, I feel like the world needs sport more today than any part in history. And that Nike, what Nike is, Nike's at the center of sport. It helps mm. enable sport. And so I, I joined Nike because of Nike's purpose, which is bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And athlete asterisk, that's every, if you have a body of an athlete, but this whole notion that we can help bring a source of inspiration, hope, and joy to people all over the world at a time where it's necessary. Yeah, that's a great tale, John. And I, I went to school at the University of North Carolina where uh, Dean Smith was not just the basketball coach, he was the life coach. We all took uh, all our life advice from Dean Smith. But I have to ask you, and this is before you got there as CEO, but when Nike made the decision to put Colin Kaepernick on its advertising, a lot of people saw that as a divisive move, not a united move, a divisive move. That, that he was not a character who brought people together. Well, Alan, this gets to a conversation you and I've had many times where in, in today's environment, it's important that companies not just look after their commercial interests and ignore what's going on in society. It's important that companies have a point of view on some societal issues. And every company needs to figure out what are the societal issues that are connected to your purpose as a company. In Nike's case... Nike has a long history of taking incredible elite athletes, in many cases, elite black athletes, Michael Jordan being one of the most visible, Bo Jackson, Tiger Woods, Kobe Bryant, Serena Williams, LeBron James, the list goes on, right? And they are the heroes for our company. They are the heroes for our company. We also have a strong connection with black culture. The Jordan brand, 
the Nike brand, both Black and Latinx, and many diverse cultures. Nike is a global brand that has strong connections with many diverse cultures. And so we view it as part of our core purpose to take a point of view and stand up for racial justice. Take a racial justice and social justice is something we believe in because it's connected to our history, our heritage, and our purpose. Our athletes care about it. Our consumers care about it. We have a very diverse consumer base. So we, we understand that not everyone's going to agree with our perspective, but whether it was a Colin Kaepernick ad or the Just Don't Do It campaign we ran earlier this year, we just view racial and social and ultimately economic justice to be an extension of our core purpose as a company. Yeah, let me quickly follow up on that because I think this is an important part of the conversation we have on this podcast. You do it because you believe in it and it reflects your values and it reflects your purpose, but it's also damn good for your business. Well, yeah, yes. Well, I mean, it's, that, that's one and the same. I mean, I, I you know, I, um, I'm still blessed to be part of the PayPal board and Dan Schulman always mm. says so well, what is good purpose and good business are not inconsistent with one another. When they're authentic and you do them well, they can be mutually reinforcing. But we, we didn't do it because we think, oh, we're going to sell more Jordans or we're going to sell more Nikes. In fact, when you make those decisions, I, I remember the night before we ran the Just Don't Do It brand campaign. You don't know how it's going to be received. But our internal discussion was it's the right thing to do for who we are, for who our stakeholders are, our athletes, our consumers and our employees. And so you do it and we try to do the right thing with authenticity. We don't always get it right. When we get it wrong, we apologize. We acknowledge it, apologize and try to do better next time. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, business leadership used to be about setting strategy in the C-suite and then giving orders to everybody down the line, telling them what they need to do to implement the strategy. But today, things are moving too fast for that kind of a top-down approach. How do you be an effective leader in that kind of rapidly changing environment. You hit the nail on the head, Alan. We've actually given a lot of thought recently to adjusting our own leadership frameworks in terms of the attributes that are necessary to serve as an effective enterprise leader. In this environment, the long-standing hierarchical pyramid with orders coming down from the top simply cannot effectively deal with the pace of change. Being a great leader in this environment requires a lot of listening, empowering one's people, setting the tone for a culture of innovation and strategic risk-taking, because at the end of the day, you can't be involved in every interaction with your customers, with your employees, with your regulators. You have to instill in your professionals a sense of values to drive the way in which they'll make those on-the-spot decisions on behalf of the organization. Thank you, Joe. Alan, it's a real pleasure. ask about company culture. In 2018, the company was rocked with some um, allegations of inappropriate workplace behavior. It was upsetting and painful and problematic. And I know that as probably as a board member, but certainly as CEO, this is something that's top of mind for you. You know, I came in and I said, I have, I have one and only one objective for my first 100 days. I want to do a lot of listening and a lot of learning. Because although I've been on the board for the 
five years, I have so much I don't know. And so by 100 days in, I had over 1,000 data points. Mm. And I asked them, what are three things we need to get right over the next 12 to 18 months? I said, what are three things we need to, to keep? Because they make us special. They are the secret and special sauce. Because I want to understand those. And then what are three things that we need to change? And so literally on my 100th day, we had a Zoom call. By then, we were in COVID. I was, I was in my home office. We had a Zoom call. It had 25,000 people on it live. And I went through a one-page Word doc with bullet points. I said, here's what you told me, what we need to get right. And guess what? I agree with that. Hmm. Those are our priorities. And then the important part was, and here's the things you said where we need to change. And you said, please, John, we have a really strong culture, but sometimes change is hard in a strong culture. And we need to change these things. And one of them was to be an even more diverse and inclusive culture. Because while Nike's been a real leader externally on standing up for racial and social justice, we still have work to do inside. You know, our representation numbers aren't that bad. We want to make them better. But the culture wasn't yet one where we were able to make it a place where all of our teammates feel like they're having fulfilling and rewarding experiences. And so we're setting up, you know, we're setting off to do that hard work. So we publish our representation goals externally. We don't set targets, but we publish so we can monitor or hold ourselves accountable and monitor progress at the board level, at the VP level, at the director and above level, and at the company level. And we break it down. We don't just use URG. We break it down Black, Latinx, mm. Native American, Asian American. So and in many ways, representation, and we've made real progress, but representation is almost the easiest part because that's just hard work and discipline. Developing our diverse talent. That's the area where I think we had the most opportunity. Well, actually, maybe second most opportunity because sometimes they don't have the same role models. They don't have the established career paths. They don't have the norms. Interestingly, what we did was we had a head of diversity and inclusion, and it was almost a separate silo. And then we had our head of talent, and that was kind of the power job. That was the job mm. that set the professional development policies, the training, the promotions. We combined those two roles because we said diversity and inclusion has to be deeply woven into what I'll call the core power talent things. Who you hire how you develop them, what training, what coaching, what feedback, promotion decisions. Mm. You know, it's interesting. One of the best examples of how challenging building inclusion is was from The Last Dance. This is what's so great about being part of Nike. You know, you live <laughs> in sport. And you think about what The Last Dance was. At the beginning of the yeah. season, this is a team that had won five rings. Yeah. At the beginning of the season, Scottie Pippen's feeling alienated and isolated. Uh, Michael's kind of upset because Rodman's in a different place. Steve Kerr is in a different place. And that whole series was how a team that had won five rings together had to work so hard to create a, an inclusive culture. And when they weren't inclusive, when they weren't in harmony, they lost at the beginning of the season. When they hit that harmony by the end of the year, they won their sixth title. But the work of building an inclusive team, an inclusive culture is hard work and you're never there. And so we're we're setting off on that journey. Yeah, that's uh, it's a great story. We can talk about Michael Jordan the whole show uh, <laughs> if you guys want to. But I want to uh, ask you because you made a reference to COVID and having to do all this during the COVID crisis. 
if you can tell us a little bit about what that's been like. I know you've announced recently that you're going to have to make some layoffs to right-size the company. Can you tell us about your COVID journey? Well, you know, Alan, I th- I'm, I'm not sure it's that that different than what many other CEOs and companies have done. Job one was to ensure the safety of our employees, and that's on all dimensions. We, by the way, we had 35,000 store employees and 10,000 distribution center employees. And you remember retail closed for 90 days and we provided 100% pay continuity. And we told them we would do that. Uh, We're blessed enough to have the assets and uh, ability to do that. And we did that. And so throughout this process, we, you know, continued the safety and well-being of our employees has to be our number one priority. What's worked out (laughs) is the fundamental shifts in consumer behavior have worked to our advantage, right? Consumers are now shopping digitally. Even when the stores were closed, we were connecting with consumers as they brought sport and activity into their homes through our Nike training club and our Nike running club app. So we've never had more engagement with our consumers and they started buying more. And so we believe that this shift in consumer behavior toward digital is not going to go back. Yeah. But you so know, what's the, what, what are the layoffs about? That's more simplifying our organization. We had simply become too complicated. Nike's famous for the matrix. Mm. Matrix had become a little cumbersome and it was not serving anyone well. We weren't able to work with the speed and agility. And so we addressed that through fairly significant reorganization. So, and as I've said repeatedly, every dollar that was saved is reinvested. It was not done for financial reasons. It was done to make us more fit to drive forward and reinvesting 100% of any savings that came out of it. I love the vision of sport as a unifying idea that we can be great contestants together. We can root for each other. We can excel. Where I struggle a little bit is with the idea that there is a coach who controls or who sets the tone, especially as we are talking about things in leadership circles like more collaboration, more leaderless teams. You know, we've been separated for during COVID and quarantine, and we're finding new ways to plug into our stakeholders in new and interesting ways that don't necessarily fit the coach model. See, I actually, Ellen, I, I actually disagree. I think coach is the most powerful metaphor for what great leadership is. I'm, I'm a disciple of servant leadership, where the job of the leader or the coach is to serve your purpose. Mm-hmm to serve your teammates and to serve the community in which you operate, serve your teammates, employees, serve your customers. And so the coaches I have behind me, think about Phil Jackson. It was never about Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson would be the first person to say that the players on his team were far better basketball players than he ever was. And his job was how to get them to play together and come to new heights, right? Now, there are some coaches that was all, and not so much anymore, but it certainly was the coaches, the boss, the authoritarian. Right. They're not authoritarians. Right. They, are, they are helping their players achieve their full potential individually and collectively. And they're doing it from a place of service. So I think that model is a very good model for what society needs right now. I totally agree. I just sort of think about it as a as an org chart hierarchy point of view. Alan made a joke earlier that he's he's going to take a year off and throw the keys to somebody else. You. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I am it's the only way I'll be CEO of anything. I am fully prepared to take the helm at, at a moment's notice. But I sort of I'm always curious about who gets to be in power 
in, in, a tra in traditional systems in the past? And is the coaching model good for a team where we can coach each other, we can take turns, we can trade off on the leadership role? That, that's really what I'm, I'm always thinking about. Well, you know, I, I would say yes. You know, that, that's what great teams do. You know, the way I think about it, most, most organizations think of themselves as a pyramid, right? CEO on top. Exactly. Notion, and everyone else is on belief. I learned early in my career to have a, sort of the exact inverse of that. Think of an upside down triangle. That's our org chart. And at the top of our organization chart is our customers, our consumers. That's why we exist. At the top of our internal organization chart is our employees that directly engage with our consumers. In our case, that's our store athletes, our store, we call them store athletes, our store employees. Those are the people that are touching and engaging with our consumers each and every day. Everyone else exists to help them help our customers. So everyone else is beneath them in the org chart. And I'm at the very bottom. The coach, the CEO is at the very bottom because my ultimate job is to help enable them to enable each other to serve our consumers and serve our community well. And so I think it's just a servant leader mindset and that the best coaches have that mindset. John, we, we started this podcast nine months or so ago because we thought something was changing in business, something pretty profound. Now, you've been on that journey for a long time, as we've discussed, but I wonder what you see. Uh, you take part in the business roundtable and the, you run the business council. You, you're, you're dealing with uh, big company CEOs on a regular basis. I wonder what you see going on. Is there something changing? that's fundamental and important and that uh, is going to have an impact on our society. Yeah, Alan, I, I, I believe there is. And it, it sort of gets to what we, we talked about early on, where we're in this moment in history when the, the polarization is there. And that's not just in the U.S. That's in every, in many, if not most countries in the world right now, where the divisiveness. And so many of the historical institutions that brought people together are struggling right now. I think there's a role for business that is incredibly important in this time in history. One is to build those teams, those cohesive teams to inspire and empower and enable our employees across geographic and other kinds of boundaries, diversity, inclusion. We have to set the example. And then second, I think it's increasingly incumbent upon businesses to speak out and be involved on the issues that are relevant to the purpose of the business. And I think the hard part is figuring out, all right, what are the topics that are genuine, right? right. For PayPal and Dan, financial inclusion's core to what PayPal's mission. I have huge respect what Doug McMillan's done on gun control, mm -hmm. because for gun control, Walmart is in the middle of that chain. He's spoken out very, very courageously, and I think admirably on it. And for us, as I mentioned, racial justice is a topic that's very core to what we're doing. And, you know, I, I just think the, the society's looking to us to do it. It's not easy. I'm not, it was so funny is, is we're not necessarily trained to do that in, in some of yeah. the ways, but, right. but it's, I, I would say I'm learning so much on that front and I get such positive feedback from our employees that I, I just know it's the right thing to do. We're all learning about how can we engage in some of these broader societal issues in a productive and constructive way. And so, you know, I, I hope, I think more and more companies are trying to engage on a subset of issues that are relevant to them. And it's a slightly different muscle of how you have to approach <laughs> it. 
Yeah. But there ain't a lot happening without the businesses and companies being involved, so it can't make it worse. <laughs> well, exactly. And so let's see if we can be, you know, let's see if we can make a modest contribution and, and make some real progress. And Ellen, you know, you've hosted so many of these calls on, you know, we're still early days, I think. Yeah. But I, I think the interest and desire is genuine. And our employees care deeply yeah. Yeah. about these things. Uh, agree with all of that. Uh, John Donahoe, uh, really great conversation. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Alan. Thank you, Ellen. Uh, enjoyed it. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 